Hey, welcome to the Juice Bar Experts podcast, where we are going to give you tips, tools, strategies for launching a new juice bar or scaling and increasing the profitability and efficiency in your existing juice bar. I'm your host, Andrew McFarlane. For the last 10 years, I've been in the juice bar business, running my own juice bars, as well as helping hundreds of entrepreneurs all around the world launch successful juice businesses. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I'm here with my dear friend and business partner, Arm Zadikian, who is really, you know, one of the most qualified people to talk about this topic today. And as the episode uh, implies, today we are talking about really a hidden stream of revenue that can really be a game changer for juice bar businesses. And what is that? Well, it is really creating what's known as like CPG products. These are basically, in layman's terms, packaged goods that you guys see everywhere. You go to the grocery store, you see uh, chips, you know, you could see candy bars, protein bars, the list goes on and on and on. These are really CPG products. Now, we're going to get into all kinds of things on this episode. We're going to talk about why this is a great idea for juice bar businesses, what the kind of inherent advantages are in that respect. We're also going to talk about some ideas. So what kinds of products you guys can develop that are really low hanging fruit, very easy to do based on your situation, what some of the uh, distribution channels are. We're also going to talk about uh, some of the potential barriers, right? Psychological barriers and also literal barriers and things that you have to overcome in order to do this effectively. So that's the intro. That's what we're diving into. Anything you want to add to, to that arm? No, I'm excited to dive in. Let's do it. All right. So let's, let's first, let's kind of elaborate and talk about the opportunity here because arm and I were having a great conversation yesterday as we, we tend to, I enjoy our conversations a lot. And we were talking about the, the really unique position that juice bars are in and and there's other you know you could say if you're a healthy food service cafe you're not say anybody that's in this kind of qsr packaged products the unique position that you're in compared to a lot of other people who are trying to get into this industry creating packaged goods one of the the amazing things about it is the fact that you already are one kind of in this business of creating packaged products, right? Your juice is a packaged product. If you're making to-go salads, if you're making kale chips, you're making, you know, dehydrated crackers, you're already doing it, but your distribution mechanism is only through your retail store. So you already have the added advantage of one, your, your facility is built for this kind of manufacturing. The only thing is that most people don't think to distribute these kinds of products beyond their doors or they're not thinking creatively to, because I find a lot of times in life and in business, it's all about how you frame things. It's like actually having the right context of thought starts to get the creativity of going, of going like, what is my business really? And part of your business is going to be the infrastructure that you have. What are these, these assets and, and these this equity that you have already inherently built into your company? 
And then how can you leverage that in the most intelligent and versatile and scalable way, right? So this is kind of the frame and what made us think about this and going, okay, from there, what kind of products then can you create? What other advantages? Were there anything that I missed in terms of, of just circumstantial advantages that these kinds of companies have? I think that covers it. I think I'd only add that one of the biggest obstacles that I've always found in our business was how does one go about customer discovery? How do you actually test an idea to see does this have any traction? And having a brick and mortar, having that retail channel is incredibly valuable to be able to test to be able to mm. try in a, in a way where nobody is going to become the block. A lot of times store buyers might become the gatekeepers to say, you know, I don't really think that's a good idea. Maybe it would do really well. So this ability to just try things in the market directly instead of having somebody else kind of gatekeep, I think is another incredible advantage. That that's I think that can't be overemphasized. I think that it's such an important thing that it's really, if you're not in, if you haven't run this kind of business before, you don't get how much iteration takes place because of what customers buy, what they say, how much they like something, what they like about that thing, right? There's all these nuanced things that you get in product development. The other thing about it that I hadn't thought about until you mentioned that is, is actually the, the recognition of your product already inherently in other places because you're going to have let's say for example a customer comes to your store once a week but they're at the grocery store twice a week or the grocery store three days a week depending on how they shop and buy whatever their frequency pattern is now you're actually getting more exposure from a opportunity for them to purchase from you because they might go oh i love their kale chips i'm so glad they're in the grocery store now because i can only hop over there after the gym and i work out once a week when i so now you're now now you're having this like feedback loop and and more omnipresence and i think overall is you know it elevates your brand perception if you are in whole foods and you're the juice bar, even if you only have one location, you're just going to be seen as a much larger company because on some level you are growing, but the perceptual value of your brand, one might not, they might go, oh, they've got one storefront, but they could have this in a hundred Whole Foods. They, people don't know at that point, once you even get into other locations, like what the scale of the business really is. So I think in terms of brand respect, and then now it also opens up the opportunity for you to sell these packaged goods online. You could do bundle deals. If someone really loves your kale chips, we would have that. And people see that too. You And I know you guys had that too. You'll have people, just certain like really uh, addicted customers that are like, I, I just hate being out of these things. I don't want them to be sold out. They last a month. I'm going to buy a month's worth of this stuff. And I'm going to go to your website. And yeah, that's great. I get a loyalty discount. I can even get them on a subscription and send them to me every week. There's all kinds of things that open up as opportunities when when you do this. So yeah, I love that. And uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of reasons. So do we want to start talking about some ideas that we, we came up with around kinds Definitely. of products these companies can develop? Definitely. And then I think too, if you, yeah, there's anything else you want to say about customer discovery? Because I know that for um, for you and your business, and for those of you who don't know, you might have heard other podcast episodes that I've done with Arm, but Arm has a really, really deep history in 
these packaged goods primarily with fresh food, which is even more dynamic. And we'll talk more about kind of the, the situation and kind of pros and cons of that. Um, but they had a, you know, his business had a relationship with Whole Foods. They were doing really large scale, you know, so he's been deeply immersed in the packaged goods market. And so, you know, definitely one of the major authorities to speak on this matter. And so when it comes to, for me, when I was thinking about my business, you know, running my juice bars and, a whole number of things that we would create. Some of that are maybe obvious to people, and some of that were just kind of creative things we would just test out. And even the first thing that comes to mind when I'm thinking about that, we used to create these almost like um, healthy fruit roll-ups. We would actually take the puree from the apples and like, because, you know, when you press apples, you get this like almost like sediment afterwards. It's not juice. And it's not fully like fiber, it's something kind of in between. And we would actually just spread that on to these the Teflex paper in the dehydrators and we would dehydrate it. And what would come out would be this kind of like fruit roll-up style, um, you know, like gummy almost. And we would just roll it up and we would sell that. Um, we did that kind of on occasion. We weren't consistent with it, but people liked it. Um, there was another thing we made called crunchies. It was like a buckwheat almost like a cracker it was savory but it was also sweet we put raisins in it so it's like this hybrid just like snack turmeric powder cumin so it was like really it hit almost i would imagine it'd probably be like a cracker that like uh indian restaurant would create it had that kind of profile but also once again a really unique product that we just dehydrated and people loved this thing they loved it um and i i'd had the mind that i had now or have now I probably would have thought to actually, you know, push the distribution of this product a lot more. So in in line with that, you know, um, a few ideas that we were writing down together and some, like I said before, you guys might have thought of, some might be a little bit more creative. Um, one, crackers, as we mentioned, all forms of it. One thing I want to uh, emphasize with the cracker idea is an advantage you have is you already have pulp fiber from the juicer so you have and this is a you know a byproduct of your maybe primary product that's going either in the trash you're composting it but most of the time people aren't making money off of their pulp and you're producing lots of it as a juice bar more than you know most people can even imagine depending on the scale and volume of your business so to be able to utilize that and repurpose it into another product and you can even use a singular juice or you can create different kinds of crackers from different kinds of juices because obviously the pulp mix from those crackers are going to be different and so crackers is an obvious one another one that um, people have come to me with this idea in the past they wanted to create healthy dog biscuits similar to a cracker right but shape generally more like a protein bar but it's also the contents are kind of similar and you just market it to a different audience the ingredients and recipe could even be very similar but it's just a matter of how you're framing that specific product right uh, beyond that ones that are maybe obvious to you guys kale chips you know you guys have kale you create the batter you dehydrate that kale chips are very popular then you have now another product you can distribute now looking at things that um similar to the very first thing that I said, but is not as processed, dehydrated fruit. You know, we had a, a business I was partnered in a few years back. We were just slicing pineapple, dehydrating. People love it. It's like candy. 
you know, it's some healthier version of that for a lot of people. And that's all they need. I've seen even for me traveling to Bali a lot, they, some companies will dehydrate cross sections of dragon fruit. Looks really colorful. It's awesome. Okay. Uh, another idea we were talking about trail mix. That's really simple, basic, but people want it to snack on and you have all the, you've got generally goji berries in your store and almonds and cashews and raisins and sunflower seeds and pumpkin seeds and kind of you name whatever variation of that you want to create. You want to create a superfood trail mix with cacao and whatever else, you know, golden berries. You can do it. It's already there. It takes no effort. That 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 kind of product in particular, probably very different than the other ones, requires very little labor. It's literally an assembly process. You're mixing it up and now you have it in your store for things things for people to buy. And it takes very little effort. You know, it's just a matter of packaging it correctly, having the right branding. And then, yeah, okay, it's a trail mix. And so I love this stuff to snack on. I travel a lot. I like the protein bars. I like little healthy snacks. I like being able to have this stuff and go on a plane other than what's usually offered at the airport. So if I have that and I'm in the right time, right context, of course, I'll go pick it up. Right. Um, beyond that, now we have actual this this product is is going to be unique in the category of things that we've mentioned but you could make healthy popsicles from your juice you know kids they're going to love this stuff even adults it's going to require this kind of thing maybe more freezers and freezer space if this actually becomes popular but once again this is all a testing ground a lot of the stuff some stuff you'll be able to scale in your production more easily because your space and your equipment and everything in the facility will uh, accommodate the growth of that product. But I often say in business, these things can be good problems to have, right? When you when you come up against the edge of your growth, these are good problems to have. It, it's it means that if you are forced to invest in more equipment, even an additional facility, it's because you are feeling the positive pressure, right, of of your growth. Now, beyond that, we were talking about superfood powder blends, your spirulina, your chlorella, your maca, your ginseng. You can create specific superfood blends for specific purposes. If you get a, you know, even a plain protein powder and if you want to add certain things to it, okay, great. Now, you, now you've recreated a new product and now you can resell it. So there's that. Other little things I came up with and we were talking about desserts. The challenge when you start getting into things that are refrigerated, right? Transportation and probably arm you want it. You can elaborate more on that. Like, what are your thoughts in general about um, desserts? You know, creating things that and there's obviously desserts range and category, but like you know, frozen items, refrigerated items. I know you have a lot of experience with that. Like, what are some key things to think about? I think it's really important to understand the distance from the potential retailers, right? The, the, the new channels, if you have to ship something, uh, very different than if you're able to deliver somewhat down the block or at least in a, in a five mile radius, I think that changes the, the picture and, and the types of products that one can be looking to produce. I think we primarily sold fresh food with a, about a five to seven day shelf life. And you really do run into spoilage issue, right? Uh, by the time stuff gets merchandised, you typically distribute it the following day. And you have to think that when something gets very close to the end of the shelf life, 
that typically becomes harder to sell. So you really have this like sweet spot of four to five days. Uh, desserts are great sometimes, depending on how they're produced and the, uh, the moisture content. Uh, and if you can get a, a two week to three week shelf life, that really opens up you know, a lot of possibilities. I think another thing, as you were talking about this, another thing to think about is really focusing on how to maximize your existing uh, list of ingredients. If you, if one really goes through, and we typically would try to do this, we'd look at our entire list and we'd just try to see where are areas that are being underutilized and how do we leverage those and increase the usage. And by doing so, you start to gain more purchasing power. It's easier to manage that inventory because you can buy it in bulk. Um, it's easier to manage things that might start to spoil if you don't use them as frequently. So I think in general, this idea of using these new forms of product as almost a balancing act to increase your velocity and your turnover of your raw ingredients. Mm -hmm. So it's an, another thing to kind of uh, approach you know, product development. You know what I was thinking about as well? In the same way that, like we were talking about earlier on, using your customer base as a research tool for what kinds of products you want to make, I also found that internally, if you have other retailers, which inevitably are going to approach you, in some ways, it's another benefit of getting as many kinds of companies within the context of your brand in your business as possible. Why? Market research. If you find out, oh, hey, look, these desserts are going really, really well. We can create our own version of that. And this is the same strategy that a lot, you know, you look at Whole Foods, they've got their Whole Foods brand, and then they got everyone else that's in there. You know, they they want to use that information of what consumers are buying, create their own their own version of it, prioritize that, put that in the, you know, get that primary real estate because that's the business they're in. They own the real estate and they're going right. to make sure that they dominate. So you can leverage other people's process of market research, but you can do it in a more concentrated volume because they might have one product. Think about this is a massive advantage as having a juice bar storefront. You can have 15 different products at a given time that you're testing, some that you're making, some that you're allowing to be in your stores. But it's once again, it's a matter of how you're framing your thinking about what's going on. Because there's so many opportunities oftentimes as business owners that are under our nose, we just don't see them. And we're not interpreting the data and the feedback that we're getting in order to leverage it for our advantage in the future. So I think that's probably the biggest uh, foundation of this conversation as a whole. So the other thing that we were talking about, just to circle back a little bit on the desserts topic, and, and you know, I was thinking about, and I would love to get your take on this, I probably wouldn't suggest that out of the gate anybody creates any products that really require refrigeration or freezers. Not because of the complexity of just internally in your operations of storing those things and making those things, and like you said, the moisture shipping items, but also when it comes to building a relationship with a retailer, that real estate is usually like the hardest to get into. So if you want to start probably, you know, you want to be in the top 10% of, of primary real estate, it's the refrigerated section, it's the frozen section, right? On a, on just a, a square footage basis, we all know if we walk into the grocery store, it's 10 to 
of the actual aisle space. And so now if you're going to compete and try to get into that space, I think it's exponentially harder. Would you agree? It's an interesting one. It's there's, I think a reason why it's an expanding section. It has Mm. the highest velocity in the store. And for that reason, um, it's tricky to work with, it's tricky for retailers to work with national or regional brands when it comes to that section, because the, the fresher the food, the longer the supply chains, the lower the quality, right? So if you look at the, if you look at the fresh food items that are likely coming from national or regional brands, they tend to be extremely uh, airport food for a reason, right? Because they've removed as much moisture as possible. If you're getting a salad, you're getting everything separated. The lettuce is bone dry. Um, Whereas if you're local and you don't have those requirements, you're able to play with the food. You're able to increase the quality and the taste and I think that brand, I think retailers, if they can, they typically try to access local producers be, for that reason. Mm. On the other hand, when you are going for more dry shelf staple products, you suddenly do open up to much broader competition because now anybody mm. can fill that shelf space. So it is a double-edged sword. On one end, you have the longer shelf life. You don't have to worry about spoilage. Um, the other side of that is you don't get nearly as much turnover and velocity. Your sales are typically much lower. You might sell one item as a shelf stable product where you might sell 10 in the refrigerated section or the, or the, um, you know, the, the, the semi refrigerated section where there, if you, it's even interesting where people are putting things in the refrigerated section that are not even required to be refrigerated, right? Because there's a perception of, of health and freshness that comes in that section. So I think it's a growing section and it's, it's, uh, the, the competition is high, but there is also the issue of, I think, producers that tend to cycle through, um, cycle in and out of that shelf space because it is a hard thing to produce when that's all you're doing. Back to, again, the, the advantages, I think, of a, of a juice bar having a retail presence is it's not your primary revenue stream. And therefore, you don't have to be so overly focused on having massive margins. Um, you can kind of play and balance and put items in there that maybe a producer that only produces that, like in our case, that's what we were doing you have to make sure you maintain a minimum margin. Otherwise the business starts to kind of fall apart. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, 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 um, it's debatable. Last thing I'll add to this is I think it's also important to consider what products you are probably well positioned to produce. If you're, if something is a waste stream, and you have a really good margin on it because it's something that you're putting to trash anyway, I think that item becomes very playful. Whereas if you were producing that as your primary revenue source and suddenly now it's like, you know what, I can do a 10% margin on this and it's still profit, um, that becomes really competitive for everybody involved. 
Mm, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I would say probably my only initial thought or aversion, as I as I may have mentioned, is just the complexity of production, transportation, and storage in that kind of environment. But it does make a lot of sense what you're saying in terms of uh, actually having potentially less competition because of that, right? And so, right. Uh, yeah, barriers to entry, I think, in business are a paradox. It's like, obviously, the easier something is, the more people would do it. And the mm -hmm. harder something is, fewer. And therefore, if you can come across and, and cross that chasm, then you're in a better situation for it. So it makes a lot of sense. The, the other thing you just made me think of is, again, back to having the retail location, you've already gone through the health department, you've already gone through the regulatory barriers. Uh, you're, if you're dealing with a, a purely shelf stable product, you know, you get into the cottage law, uh, you get into areas where, again, just more competition. Again, people that aren't, they're still maybe local and they're producing, you know, out of their home kitchen. That's great. But I think as a differentiator, you do have this advantage having, you know, retail. Mm, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so continue with this list. Uh, so somewhat a subcategory of desserts, but cookies, you could look at healthy cookies, um, protein bars, right? or any other kind of, because, you know, trail mix bars or any kind of bar that you could create with the ingredients you have. Uh, another thing that I was looking at were just similar to the superfood powder supplements, but there could be herbal supplements that you're creating, teas, right? Um, and that could be the packaged, you know, actual dry ingredients, but it could also be stuff that you actually create as a tea that could be shelf-stable and the thing about those kinds of products is sometimes you'll see them on the retail shelf and then other times you'll see them in the refrigerated section too. So they have a variety of places that they can be developed based on, I guess, the, the actual recipe and what's inside of it and its shelf life, et cetera. And so uh, that's, that's kind of the list that I put together. You know, And there's probably so many more because literally Arm and I were talking for like five seconds and we just rolled out about 10 ideas if we were to think about this for a long time, then that's where I think you start to perfect the attributes because much of the brilliance of this is not just, okay, what do consumers want and what can I create? But what, like Aram was mentioning, is like, what has margin? What has good shelf life? What has low competition? Like there's a lot of factors when you're doing product development that you have to consider. And that's what makes a good product is it has to make sense in a multitude of dimensions. Absolutely. And so moving on to the other element that we discussed earlier on that we were going to touch on is barriers to entry. Now, what are some of the, in your perspective, mental barriers that people might have, but also like actual literal barriers that people have getting into this? So I think if we... Do we want to speak to, because I, I do think there's two groups here, right? I mean, the, the beauty of this on the other side is it actually has a very low barrier to entry if you are doing shelf stable, if it's baked goods, or you know, you have now cottage laws that are allowing anybody pretty much from their home kitchen. So it's a really great way to kind of bootstrap from zero. Um, so in that case, I think it's it's really a mental, uh, in a way, mental barrier. I think getting out there, putting your product out, you have this creation and you now have to go out and try to get it in front of people. The sales process, 
you're going to get a lot of no's. You're going to get a lot of like, you know, who are you walking in off the street? I think that can be pretty disconcerting for people in general. Um, and it is very much a face-to-face thing. You're not going to be able to get on the on a phone and try to, you know, cold call people. You have to show up at the store and it's it's very still organic and down to earth. And you're looking at the buyer and you're probably the owner operator of a, of a small place and just saying, you know, can I, uh, can I sample this for you? And I think that's a, uh, I think that's typically a block for people. Um, so I think for the, from the mental side, from the fresh food side, if we're going to move kind of towards the, for the established retail location that has a, a kitchen in place, I think the barrier there is more logistical. Um, you have, definitely transportation, you know, even in, in the case of not having a refrigerated vehicle, you're putting it in insulated bags. You have to have somebody actually drive it over. So you're now getting into that process of, of delivery. You're, you're primarily typically doing it kind of early in the morning if you're trying to maximize that shelf life. Um, so there's this issue of, of scheduling around that, incorporating that into the rest of your, your day. I think getting the um, the logistics on the back end in terms of billing and collections, and you're now operating a kind of B2B model as opposed to, you know, you collect cash and it's done. So you now have uh, collections to think about. You have accounts receivable and cash flow as you scale. These all become very real. Suddenly, you're as a as a retail operation, you you don't have a, a, the cash flow constraint that you do as a business to business operation. So, um, yeah, I mean, we can go on and on, yeah. but those are just yeah. a few. And also, just to touch on without getting in, yeah, going down the rabbit hole so deeply, but also thinking about the kinds of terms that you're going to have, whether it's. Uh, doing consignment, you know, and, and, and kind of an interesting throwback to the inception, or you could say genesis of our relationship is Aram through the company that we were mentioning before, they were selling their products in our juice bar. So that was, <laughs> right. a, you know, a big part of how we connected originally. And so this was, and I remember even us sitting down having a meeting and talking about the business model before you guys were like going to do it. So, uh, a, a beautiful insight that another kind of added benefit of being a juice bar owner and getting into this is you are approached by people who are doing this all the time. So you're on both ends of it. And so you can speak with confidence and not just in terms of your presentation, you can really have a deep knowing of who are the companies that you let resell their products in your store and why, and what makes them good relationships to have, right? In terms of things like you mentioned, Billing presentation. I can say personally, I'll just kind of add my perspective on when people came into my store, why I would say yes to a company or say no to a company. Most of it had to do with if I felt that their business was meeting or adding to the value of my brand. So if someone came in and their product presentation just didn't feel like it was up to standard, that I would say, I can't have this in here because it's not going to make, you're, you're, you're pulling the quality of my brand down. And this real estate, it, we're not, you know, I didn't have a, f- a huge first location. We didn't have all the space in the world, so we had to be very, very selective with that. Uh, and did they have flexible terms? 
were they coming to me in a way where they were saying, hey, you've got to buy 100 up front and you got to pay cash today? Well, that's risk to me. If they were willing to take on the risk and say, hey, you know what? You're elevating my brand and you're like, I'll, I'll put a box in the store. I'll call you, see how it's going. No risk. If it's not selling, we'll take it out. No problem. The ease of that dynamic, because the thing is with other retailers, I always remind people, you're probably one of hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of SKUs. So any hint that another retailer gets, they don't need you. They might like to have you, but the likelihood of your singular business or brand making any big impact on the outcome of their company as a whole is next to none. They don't That's need right. you. So it means like in any asymmetrical dynamic, you have to just be an asset. You have to just be an asset. You cannot walk in there and pose any level of feeling that you're going to be a liability in that relationship. And what are the things that imply that? Not having the right presentation and packaging or clear outline of, hey, this is how we order. This is if you need more. We'll call. We'll check in. The more you can show up and just allow someone to understand how you function and can you let us know what would be good for you, right? Because we're happy to accommodate they have the power in that relationship, so you need to accommodate them in that relationship. And so to me, these are the things that I saw and when I was saying yes to companies or no to companies, which definitely gives me a little bit of deeper insight into what kind of company for you guys you would want to present yourself as if you are presenting yourself to other retailers. I think it's an excellent point. Absolutely. So other things that we can discuss are just some ideas on places you can distribute these products, right? Different distribution channels. So any that come to mind for you? Yeah, I think as you were talking about this, I think oddly enough, it's um, juice bars were one of our first channels that we approached. And the reason is typically their, their owner operator models. It means that you can actually get directly to the decision maker and I think in, in this case, it's nuanced, right? Because if you're a direct competitor, uh, there's, uh, there's some touchiness there in terms of packaging and branding and if you're pulling uh, customers away. But I think that um, I don't know if it necessarily has to be an all or nothing under the, the branding and the packaging if it has to only exist as, uh, as, a, as a fully branded product the same as the juice bar. I think there's really flexibility there and, and playfulness that can be had. Um, so yeah, there, there, there's one uh, channel to think about. Um, I think the smaller the store that one can approach the buyer directly, I think that's always the starting point. Um, that was definitely the starting point for us. I yeah. think farmers markets uh, are an, another interesting channel to uh, to to look at, especially if you can also incorporate your you know your packaged juice as as an existing product. So this is not even new stuff. If you're not already in kind of a farmers market, I think that's another uh, channel to look at. And then I think slowly as you escalate and you start to gain traction, because really what a, a, a I would say a slightly larger retailer, not even not even a Whole Foods level, but let's say like a a small health food store type uh, retailer. I think what they're really looking for is some type of proof, some validation that this stuff moves. Because for them, 
their primary business, unlike a hybrid, you know, they're primarily a retailer that's selling their own product, they're just a grocer. And for them, every inch is accounted for. So if you put something on the shelf, they're thinking opportunity cost. Do I really want to waste? Do I, do I want to risk not just that, you know, I bought something and it's not going to move and I'm going to pay for spoilage, but what did I lose out by moving something else off the shelf? So I think you're, there's two things to look at. It's that uh, locations, retailers that actually have the space already allocated. And then there are retailers that I have empty space. I don't have anything there. That is a really much easier sell. And a lot of times I find that um, the smaller the shop, the less that they're optimizing every inch of their retail space. And that's typically where you can even find, give the idea, hey, why don't we put a merchandiser in? Um, maybe a good idea to get you some additional revenue. And they're, uh, they're a little bit more open to that idea. Mm, so those are some yeah. of the kind of initial thoughts. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, I think that, um, you know, what you said about really not having the space be utilized as a key thing, but it's also kind of a, a little bit of a, a, a paradox too, I think with smaller stores, because they're just not generally doing the volume. Right. If they're not thinking right. about it, it's because it's some implication around their lack of thinking about many aspects of their business. And I, I also think with building momentum is an important and powerful thing. So sometimes maybe even getting in those initial stores, it's not because you're going to do these gangbuster sales, but it actually helps you gain confidence, but also to point to other retailers. Oh, yeah, you might you might have seen our products we're selling here. And we're selling there and we're selling there. So it actually becomes a thing that gets you access to bigger brands. Because if there are brands that are like, you know what, well, I like that that company. And if they see something in your in your business and you've been there for six months, maybe I'll give them a call, see how it's going. You know, it's relationship. You want to build momentum in your business. And so sometimes you have to start with the places that might just be a, a, a notch on your resume to be able to now give you access to other places to then go into. And now you also have metrics around how many units you might be selling, where you're selling them, where the market, there's gaps in the market. And you can, you can approach larger companies with a probably, you know, a more intelligent sales uh, proposition based on kind of your history of sales in other places. Absolutely. I, I also think as you're saying this, there is, there's a place to approach, I would say non-traditional outlets. So are there places like yoga studios, right? Like um, other kind of health centers where people aren't necessarily going to eat, but then there is this additional spot. And a lot of those places typically don't even have merchandisers in place. So it's another, there, there is, I think, a lot of that creativity at this level in the, in the very early stages where you can help people make connections in terms of their thinking to bring these types of products into their locations. And they do well, depending on how they're merchandised, uh, they can do quite well. There's definitely been a couple places that uh, picked up our products. Again, in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's a tiny amount of revenue, but it, it is really about that momentum. And I think all of these ways to get customer feedback and to build validation, not just for other retailers, but I think even internally, understanding what products are 
possibly not in their full, fully formed ultimate evolution of, of that product, but what's starting to kind of point towards a potential path. And I think for us, our product evolved over the years as the company grew and scaled, we naturally started to scale towards a product that did have better shelf life. And a lot of that isn't even necessarily about changing the quality of the product, but changing your process on the back end, changing how you distribute your temperature control systems, um, the, the way that you actually formulate and construct uh, the most basic things can have these major impacts. So I think, I think there is this um, constant evolution and anything that helps you see that potential for evolution, I think is valuable. Yeah. Another point that I, I think is possibly valuable to make about the fresh versus frozen versus dry is if you do start out going into smaller retailers with a fresh food product. Let's say you end up in 20 stores and you're doing one or two units a day. Now, logistically, this is a complicated thing to manage. Um, (laughs) Because now, because you're having to stay in touch with, anytime you're, like the shorter your shelf life gets, the more dynamic your process is because now you have to stay in contact with more retailers in shorter periods of time. Right. And then that that loop feeds back on every other aspect of your business, how quickly you order things and in what volume for. Term. So that's probably I, I'd say like in where I'm standing, I'd probably not want to day one go down that route because of the, the risk that's involved in that uh, from a logistical place. If you haven't really dialed in your business to be optimized logistically with a dry product, you got a little bit more wiggle room. Right. You're going to be able to even produce maybe even more than you need at a given period of time and go, okay, you know what? And if that product doesn't sell, let's say for whatever reason you lose an account or it's not selling in a certain place, you just take that product and you move it to another location, right? Having freedom and flexibility and um, to be very responsive and flexible in, in an early stage of any business venture, I think is a really, really key you know, even in nature, right? Like the things that are more adaptive and flexible, they survive. So not being too rigid and having these constraints and over committing yourself in one direction or another, I think is really uh, a really good key um, early on. 100%. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. It's, it's, it's a very double-edged sword. And on one end, thus there's the velocity. On the other end, um, there have been many, many days where the, uh, the, the outcome of the, at the end of the day was we got to get into a more shelf-stable product. We got to get out of fresh food, right? So there's, I, I think every business probably on some level, there's like the, you know, the ugly part, the difficult part of the business and I think in this case, it is. It is that you know the movement of goods um, is difficult. And when it's a perishable item, the more perishable it is, the more difficult that aspect of it is. Um, Sauerkraut, kimchi, <laughs> yeah, fermented absolutely. things, fermented, fermented items, fermented foods. 100%. You know, it's that's huge. another. If you are going to go refrigerated route, that's probably one that you could consider because now you've extended the shelf life a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, it becomes almost indefinite. Yeah, I think I think the uh, 
I think also just the move in terms of our, as our understanding of our uh, microbiome increases, I think gener in general, I think fermented foods are going to continue to kind of gain market share. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and a lot of cultures um, outside of the U.S., they have a larger variety of things that they ferment for sure. And as, as human beings, historically, we needed to do it. Right. It was one of those things that because we didn't have the technology we have today, we were kind of right. forced into different unique and, and creative preservation mechanisms. And right. that's a, a big, a big one. Uh, one thing before we close out, and also I want to get if you have any closing thoughts, but I was thinking about a company that I think has done a good job of this in, in that many of you may or may not be familiar with is a company that's based in Venice, California called Moon Juice. Now they went the route that we were thinking about going at 1.2. And I was like, yeah, of course it makes a lot of sense. You have a brand, you have supplements that you're putting in the, and they started creating a lot of different supplements for, I think a lot of it was focused on women. And then they found, yeah. they got deals with the whole foods and the Erewhon's and other places and selling online. And a lot of that was a, which we haven't touched on so much. And I think we're going to be making a lot more content in this regard, but you know, the, the marketing piece of this becomes so much larger in, in importance because anytime you start expanding beyond your physical storefront, your location gives you a great advantage because your location is marketing in itself. People see you because of that. But now when you want to get orders from customers online or you want to have a presence where when you walk into a retail shop, someone says, oh, I've heard of your brand. I've heard of your products. Now it's going to take some internet marketing. It's going to take some YouTube videos. It's going to take, possibly depending on the product too, it could take a lot more customer education. You might need YouTube videos in long format, right? The Instagram for that specific product. And so the good news is probably by the time that you get around to starting to make those kinds of time and financial investments, you already have the customer buy-in where you've done the research you know that it's a good product to you people are buying it in your store they're excited about it they're coming in there i mean i remember at one point we had a woman that drove an hour she was so disappointed i was so heartbroken because we had these cinnamon rolls we used to make and she's like i heard they were so good i drove an hour from orange county to come and get these cinnamon rolls and you're out i'm devastated and i was like i feel so devastated but had we not been out you would have never told me this and I would have never known how much you love them and people love them. So there's unique things that you're going to learn from customers in your business about these products. And then you go, okay, you know what? It's time to double down, triple down. Let's really invest and push this thing because it's kind of reached that tipping point in demand. And it makes sense on all those other metrics for us as well. Uh, any any closing thoughts? Anything else you want to share? Yeah, I think I think it's really important what you just talked about. And I think, I think the importance of the brand because, you know, Moon Juice, excellent example, right? I think excellent branding, um, really well put together positioning. And I think because of that, they were able to kind of launch and expand past that because there, there maybe was a time right in history where brand was extra, um, and that there was enough of a personal relationship and there was enough kind of word of mouth understanding that you didn't need that shortcut. But today it is the heuristic that helps us make a decision. We're, we're inundated with too much to use any other tool. So brand becomes that shortcut. And I think that 
the investment in brand, in really good branding, in really good marketing becomes a necessity at this point. It's no longer this, this luxury item. And I think this is especially relevant when you're thinking to expand past your retail store because your retail store is, it's not just, okay, you have a pretty facade and all that, but there's people physically inside. That's what establishes trust. I can see the people in the back making the product and that's, what's establishing trust. Um, when, when suddenly you're removed from that, you have nothing else other than brand. Um, so yeah, I, I I completely agree. I think it's, um, it's critical at this point. Yeah. Your design is, is part of that, right? So design being really a subset of your brand, but the packaging, because you can't, you're not there to sell it. Your excitement is not going to sell it, right? It's just what people see and they're going to make these subconscious judgments on the product at that point. And so really understanding consumer psychology and what people feel when they see something. And is that what you want them to feel? And does the product deliver on that, uh, perceptual, uh, promise? Uh, it's been great. Uh, uh, I want to leave you guys with this arm and I, part of what's inspired this conversation, we're going to be starting to take on some clients to help you guys in a greater depth, develop these products, right? Kind of part of the conversation we've gone through, but in a greater fashion, help you develop the brand, help you understand the key considerations around what kind of products you should develop, how to do it, take you every step of the way, get you guys into these locations and just help you grow your businesses overall, but in this new dimension. So reach out to me personally, andrew at starterjuicebar.com. I'd love to have a conversation if it's a fit and see if we can support you grow your business in this dimension. And that's all for today. Anything else? I love it. Excited to get started. All right. Talk to you guys soon. Take care. (laughs) 